Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey guys, it's Ray Solomon, one of the producers for KUNC's Colorado Edition. We've got this incredible show team, so smart, so curious, and we work every day to find new perspectives and great stories that are going to deepen your understanding of life in Northern Colorado. That's our mission. That's why we do what we do. But let me ask you this. When is the last time you opened your mailbox and pulled out a radio bill? Never. That's when. And that's because this show, along with the rest of KUNC's great programming, is available to everyone in the community free of charge. Now, that doesn't mean it's free to make. Great radio takes time, and time is money. But we put it out there for free because we're a nonprofit public radio station. And we're able to put it out there for free because we have supporters like you who become members by making a donation, even though they don't get a bill, because they value our work. And I know for a fact that you value our work because you pressed play on this podcast. So why not do the member thing and make a donation to KUNC right now? Go ahead, swipe on over to your web browser, go to KUNC.org, become a sustaining member there, or you can call 800-443-5862. And you can go ahead and press pause right now while you do that. And you're back. So thank you for making a gift to KUNC. And now for today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Independent Commission tasked with overhauling the state's U.S. House districts recently approved a new map. We have changed the course of congressional redistricting in Colorado. On today's show, we'll explore the changes and the potential impact. And we talk with a Fort Collins resident about her local family history that stretches 100 years back to the once major sugar beet industry. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. An independent commission tasked with redrawing the state's legislative districts has until this Tuesday, October 12th, to choose new boundaries. Drafts of the new maps released last week show Democrats would be favored to keep control of both the state House and Senate. Democrats have controlled the legislature here for the past three years. At least eight of the commission's 12 members need to agree on one of the proposed maps for the House and Senate, which then go to the Colorado Supreme Court. The court can adopt them or send them back to the commission with recommended changes. But if the redistricting process for Colorado's U.S. congressional districts is any indication, this might not be as easy as some are hoping. Late last month, that commission, with equal numbers of Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated voters, approved a congressional map to send to the state Supreme Court, which has until November 1st to approve it or send it back. But several groups have since filed objections to it with the court. They say the map does not give Latino voters enough voting influence and splits up counties that should remain whole. The map is also drawing fire from some Democratic groups who think the court should consider other options. 
Some of the pushback is centered around Colorado's new 8th district, which is the result of the state's growth in the 2020 census. We spoke with KUNC state capitol reporter Scott Franz about the proposed congressional map and its potential impact just after the commission settled on the version they sent to the Supreme Court. Now, for those who haven't been keeping up, tell us briefly about the work of this commission. Right. Well, it's been a very long journey for the last six months. uh, This group has been doing this really tough job of redrawing the state's congressional districts. Um, These boundaries only get updated once a decade. And this year was really important because of this 8th district um, that we now have a better idea of where it's going. Um, And of course, this process, because politics are involved, tends to be controversial. It attracts a lot of public attention and scrutiny. because so much is at stake, you know, including which parties are favored to win certain House seats. Um, So to catch people up, they've reviewed dozens of maps, they've toured the state, gotten all the feedback, um, they've endured, um, but they've also endured their share of controversies. You know, you might remember things got off to a rocky start uh, when the chair of this group was actually removed from his leadership role um, because of political posts he was making on social media. Uh, fast forward to today, and and we finally have a map that, that is getting sent to the state Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, and you're absolutely right. It has been a very long process, a very long journey. And of course, this is the first time that an independent redistricting committee has been involved in the process. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, can you tell us a bit about this committee, who's part of it, and how it came into existence? Well, this was created thanks to Colorado voters who overwhelmingly approved a ballot question three years ago, taking the process out of the state capitol where things are more prone to uh, political maneuvering and influences, partisan bickering. The idea was ultimately to create a balanced group uh, who could represent the state both geographically but also in terms of race and ethnicity. And it's pretty diverse in terms of age, gender, and professional background as well. For example, you know, this commission ranges from Martha Coleman, a Fort Collins Democrat and geographer who has made maps for the U.S. Forest Service. Jason Kelly is an attorney for Alamosa County. And Lori Shell is an unaffiliated economist in Durango. After this marathon meeting last night, she reflected on this long journey uh, that the group has been on. Despite the proverbial bumps in the road that we have shared, I would not have missed it. Together, we have changed the course of congressional redistricting in Colorado and provided an example for the rest of the country. Now, Scott, for anyone who hasn't seen this new map, what does it look like? And aside from adding an eighth district, how are they changing other districts? Right. I'm I'm sure people all around the state are thinking, you know, how is this map going to impact future elections? Um, To start with, it keeps all seven incumbent representatives in their home districts. So Lauren Boebert remains the Republican representative living in the third, and Joe Neguse still lives in the second district. Uh, Democrats and Republicans are each favored to win three seats each under the map, uh, with the last two considered toss-ups that still lean toward Democrats, uh, and that's based on previous election results. Um, Some other highlights, you know, if you live in Route County, you're on the verge of being moved to the second congressional district, along with Jackson. Uh, That new district would stretch from northwest Colorado all the way over to Boulder. And if you live in Greeley, um, my message right now is get ready for some more political ads, because if these boundaries are approved, 
Um, this eighth district is set to be the most competitive. Uh, there will be lots of money being spent on campaigns. Um, and down the road, it, it could impact, you know, the future of who holds the majority in the House. Um, so, of course, that means more mailers, debates, and political activity uh, in this district. Okay. Maybe if you're thinking about a larger mailbox, now is the time. <laughs> exactly. Now, in addition to the population growth we mentioned, Colorado is also seeing demographic changes, uh, particularly with an increasing Hispanic and Latinx population and expanding urbanization. How does the new map take these factors into account? This new 8th district has almost 40% Hispanic voters, which is the largest number uh, in the state. And this is really a reflection of the recent growth of the state's Latino population. Yadira Caraveo is a Latina state lawmaker and pediatrician from Thornton. Uh, she's already announced she's running for this seat. So what happens next? Uh, now that the proposed map has been approved, it's headed to the state Supreme Court to await final approval. Is there any indication of how they'll decide and any concerns the Supreme Court might have that would prevent them from granting approval of this new map? Well, I'm not quite sure yet how this is going to play out. The Supreme Court has a, a checklist it needs to go through. Uh, that process will start next month. Um, they really need to make sure each district has equal population, um, is, quote, contiguous, keeps cities and counties whole, um, and is politically competitive. So, you know, some of these criteria, there's room for interpretation. And as we've seen with this committee, um, you know, they've had hours of debate over this issue with with some, you know, still having concerns, even though they they voted for this map. So this is obviously a step with enormous political ramifications. And because of that, I wouldn't be surprised if if the Supreme Court has some long discussions about whether to give this map final approval. Um, you know, some people are also wondering, are there going to be any legal challenges for them to consider? And the commission submits the map by Friday and then the Supreme Court has until November 1st. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. And Scott, I have to ask, uh, what was the mood like Tuesday night. As we have mentioned, this has been a months-long process, and it has had more than its share of tense moments. Well, it was a, a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, things kicked off at 6 o'clock. The commissioners were nostalgic. They were um, taking breaks, talking about their workout routines, what their kids were up to. Um, they were upbeat also because, you know, this very long process was finally coming to an end. Uh, but as the votes dragged on and they started to realize it was going to be hard to get that super majority they needed. Um, that's when the bickering kind of started. I think it was around 10 o'clock when, when things got the most heated. And um, at one point, their legal counsel kind of had to step in and, and urge them to, to keep, quote, cool heads as they uh, took some of the, the final votes. You know, I, I was sitting there having flashbacks of the uh, long government meetings I've covered in Steamboat Springs as a news, as a newspaper reporter, uh, where things get kind of tedious and and personal. Um, but again, uh, you know, but again, this is a government process with lots of with lots at stake. Uh, and in the end, they were able to find an agreement and vote eleven to one to advance the map uh, just minutes before a midnight deadline, which which really cheered everyone up, I think. KUNC's state capitol reporter, Scott Franz. Scott, thank you for staying up late and thank you for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. You can read more about the redistricting process at our website, KUNC.org. And still ahead, 
There are only a handful of NFL teams requiring fans to show proof of vaccination to attend home games. One of them is the Las Vegas Raiders. But some fans would rather give up their tickets than get a shot. We'll have that story from the Mountain West News Bureau coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. early 20th century, the sugar beet industry was a major economic empire along the northern Front Range. It drove population growth and the development of homes and neighborhoods that are still around today, even if the industry itself is no longer present there. At the heart of that population growth were people from Mexico and Germans from Russia coming to work in the beet fields and factories. To the northeast of Old Town Fort Collins, in the heart of the industry, three neighborhoods were settled in the first part of the 20th century, Buckingham, Andersonville, and Alta Vista, each with distinct communities and even architectural styles. And while Hispanic settlement did influence Andersonville and Buckingham, it primarily took hold in Alta Vista, which had little previous German-Russian settlement. Relative to the other, mostly European colonies, the majority of the homes in Alta Vista were built from adobe. And according to a 2004 report funded by the State Historical Fund Project, the Alta Vista neighborhood once housed one of the northernmost collections of domestic adobe architecture in North America. One of these adobe homes still standing today was built in 1921 by Jose Dolores Cordova and his family, who have been a part of northern Colorado and Fort Collins history ever since. Colorado editions Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny recently met up with Ashley Cordova, the great-granddaughter of Jose Dolores Cordova, to see the original adobe work and to hear a century's worth of Cordova family history. All right, so we are approaching 749 Martinez Street, which is our family home. My name is Ashley Cordova. I'm 34 years old. I'm a Fort Collins native. Um, my family has been in this area for over 100 years. This was built by my great-grandfather, Jose Dolores Cordova, in 1921. They moved out here. My grandmother, they brought my grandmother here to Fort Collins in a covered wagon from Cerro, New Mexico. And this is where the family home still stands 100 years later. It's built out of adobe, so straw, mud. My grandmother was a small little girl making the blocks for this home. This addition facing west, that was actually added on later on. Um, this was just a one, one bedroom home, and then they continued to add on. Um, so my grandmother came from a family of 10. My great-grandmother and grandfather had 10 children. So as you can imagine, you know, um, having that many kids in, in this small of a home. And up there's the attic where the boys, you know, slept up there and the girls on the bottom. Um, so yeah, it's been our family home for, like I said, 100 years. My great-grandfather, my grandmother, my uncle Andrew owns the home and his son Andrew lives here now, so. I mean, I grew up here. This is my home. My mom lived two doors down, um, 813 Martinez Street, and then my grandparents lived here 
Um, this is my cousin Doug's property that's been here for years. And over here is where we picked our choke cherries. We had crab apples. Wow. So all the wildlife would come out here and just eat. We had livestock here. Um, so it was pretty amazing to grow up here and just see this. And, you know, my children get to see this now and hopefully further generations. I mean, when you're young back then, you're like, oh, you hear the stories and they're always told. But as you get older, I become just so infatuated with it. Like this is a piece of history and it's my family history and to be able to talk about it and just share our story um, means everything to me. After my grandmother died, so 15 years ago, I became really involved with it. I wanted to know more. I wanted to just continue to carry our legacy on. My grandfather, Philip, was married to my grandmother, Rosie, and he had our, his family is from Walsenburg, Colorado. So they've been in Fort Collins in Colorado for over a hundred years. My grandmother's family, Rosie Cordova, her father, like I said, brought her out in a covered wagon when she was six months old to Fort Collins to better their lives. We have a street named after us. I worked really hard with the city of Fort Collins in 2017. It was a lot of hard work and I was very dedicated to that and I made sure that my family was recognized and honored. So we're seven generations now in Fort Collins, um, the Cordova family, which is absolutely amazing. You know, Kenny Cordova, he's my cousin. He's performed over 30 years in Fort Collins and so a lot of people recognize that name. Um, my cousin, Manuel Cordova, was a physical, physical a PE teacher and he dedicated his life to education so the Rocky Mountain High School Frenchfield is named after him in honor of him. I'm always giving back to my community. We have many generations of military both men and women in the Cordovas. My grandmother was she was in fifth grade when she dropped out of school to help her parents raise her younger siblings and she had to work in the beet fields and she was just so strong um, so education was very she talked about it all the time and she really pushed us her children her grandchildren and even her great-grandchildren to further education that was really important to her I grew up with my grandparents who were born in the 1920s and so they taught me how to wash on the washboard I that's how I grew up so I had friends always talking about clean clothes and they would wash in their washing machine and I'm like I washed my clothes like once a week on a washboard and had to hang them up on a clothesline mm -hmm. I just grew up in a different because they were older I grew up like that they taught me how life lessons and struggles and how to be strong and if something broke what to do to replace that so um, you know, we we were not, we were poor. We didn't have anything. You, there's the clotheslines right there. Those are really old. Uh, my uncles used to hunt all the time. So all of this, bow and arrow, they used to hunt bow and arrow. All of this, we used to have targets and they used to hunt, they used to practice. Um, we had a canal back there. We used to run back there. Um, there's an old, old folks tale. Uh, and my family would always talk about the Yorona being back here, the, the woman that, uh, so she would cry for her children. It's an old folks tale. And so that's how they would get us in. It's like, all right, it's getting dark. You guys get out in here. So we used to just run all of this, this field on our dirt bikes. And we used to play here. It'd be muddy. 
yeah, just being here, so much has changed. It's, it's emotional for me to be here. Every time I come here, it's just super emotional. I, I just so many memories, my childhood, my adulthood. It's very emotional for me to see all of the change because growing up, you didn't, you thought this was it. I mean, you know, the city didn't want anything to do with us because we were in the Spanish colony. We were, you know, poor. And one day they just decided to come in and was like, you need to get rid of your livestock. You need to, now we became city limits. And change is really hard. Change is good, but it's been hard just because my roots are here. And that's been really interesting to watch just change around me hundred years I hope that my great-grandchildren will still continue our legacy um, and just keep you know our family roots alive and where we were where we are and where we are yet to be we're planting our family tree on October 12th at Sugar Beak Park which is just to the south of us it's just right over the tracks that to me is like we are finally like going to be able to plant something like our roots are here and forever so that's just really amazing that we get to do that and be a part of that and my children get to witness that and their children and you know more generations to come that was ashley cordova telling the story of her family's legacy across a century in fort collins you can go deeper with this story and see photos of the home at KUNC.org. That piece was produced by Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. but growing number of professional sports teams are requiring fans to get vaccinated before they attend home games. They include hockey's Seattle Kraken, the NBA's Golden State Warriors, and the NFL's Las Vegas Raiders. But as Nate Hedgie reports for KUNC, diehard fans in Sin City are split on the mandate. It's an autumn weekend in Las Vegas, which means lots of sun, lots of tourists, and on a recent Sunday, tens of thousands of football fans. The fans include Isabel Gonzalez from Long Beach, California. She's wearing a black and white Raiders jersey, and she's psyched about this afternoon's game against the Miami Dolphins. I'm going to be able to scream and sweat and, you know, without having to have a mask over my face. That's because she's fully vaccinated, and so is almost everyone else in the stadium. The Raiders are requiring all fans 12 years or older to show proof of vaccination at their home games. To be frank, we did it because we thought it was the right thing to do. That's team president Dan Ventrelli. The Raiders have taken one of the toughest stances on COVID-19 in the league. Unlike the Seattle Seahawks or the New Orleans Saints, fans can't just show a negative COVID test. They have to be at least partially vaccinated to get in. And fully vaccinated people don't need to wear a mask. Ventrelli says the goal was to keep the stadium at full capacity and to keep fans safe. 
to make sure that you didn't have to worry about your health or the person sitting next to you or have any concern about whether the building was a safe environment. The move was a gamble and Raiders gave season ticket holders a choice. You could get vaccinated or get a refund or roll your tickets over to next year. About 700 fans refused a vaccine, but since then, others have filled their place. The indoor stadium seats about 62,000 people, and it's sold out for the first game, and it's mostly full for the Dolphins game. One of the fans here is Julie Carr. She's fully vaccinated and loves the mandate. I think it's just a smart thing to do. Carr is a nurse in nearby Pahrump, Nevada, and takes COVID-19 seriously. She thinks the mandate might even convince some unvaccinated people to get their first shot. Raider fans are diehard fans, just like in any other sports thing, and they're going to do what they have to do in order to come. That's a gamble the Raiders are betting on, too. If unvaccinated fans show up today and want in, they have to get a shot first. Outside the stadium, there's a big white tent where medical workers offer the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Some aren't too happy about it. I am against it. I think it's wrong. Tia Fackrell just got her first jab, and she's watching a long line of other unvaccinated fans filtering in. I think we all look like a bunch of cattle being herded in here to be branded. But she didn't want to give up her season tickets, and that seems to be the prevailing mood here. Unvaccinated fans begrudgingly getting their first shot. People like Danielle Hall. If it wasn't for this game and to watch it with my husband, I probably would never have got it. I'm not going to lie. Hall doesn't believe the vaccine is very effective, but she also didn't want to lose the money she paid for her ticket. They can cost hundreds of dollars and the team isn't issuing refunds anymore for unvaccinated folks. Hall tells me she doesn't like the mandate. It should be up to people whether they want to do it or not. It should be like pushed to just so you can watch their game. I don't think it's right. Do you think you'll get your second shot? No, I know I'm not. Just the first one to get into the game. That's it. That's all he gonna get from me. <laughs> And this shows one of the holes in the Raiders' mandate. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require a second shot. And there's no follow-up if a fan like Hall doesn't attend another game. The team is allowing partially vaccinated fans inside the stadium so long as they wear a mask as well as a yellow bracelet, like the one on the wrist of James Hansen. I think this is called the band of shame because you, you haven't got them all yet, so you got to walk around to this. This is actually Hansen's second dose of the vaccine. He got his first dose back in March, but broke out in a rash afterwards. It scared him. But then this summer, he saw that younger unvaccinated people were getting sick and even dying from the Delta variant. And that scared him even more. The Raiders requirement was the push he needed. My buddy gave me a ticket to the Raiders game and I thought to myself, you know, I can just get this shot and get it over with. I did it, even though I still didn't realize it's not good for another 10 days. I still have to wear the band, but it's done, so. About 600 people have received a shot here since the season started three weeks ago. Despite some grumbling, vaccinated fans are filling the stadium, and their sound is deafening. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie in Las Vegas. There are currently no restrictions at Empower Field at Mile High for Denver Broncos fans who are vaccinated, according to the Broncos website, which adds that guests who are unvaccinated are strongly encouraged to wear a face covering to protect themselves and others. As of late September, the Colorado Avalanche was not requiring fans to show vaccination proof or negative COVID tests for their preseason games. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. 
Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.